Just the red button, brother. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I do magnify Him, Father, Son, and Spirit, our great God. It's good to be with you, my brothers and sisters. I'm always thankful for the time, the privilege to be here at Spring Lake, as well back in Alamance County area because uh, it has been home for us for many years, and we're thankful for God's goodness. Good to have Terry with me. Seems like she never misses an opportunity if she can help it to come to Burlington. So we're thankful for uh, privilege to be with you and trust our God will be glorified in our time together. Thankful to hear you had a good Christmas gathering last night. And uh, I know that would have been a, a good time of fellowship, but also of good food. So we regret we missed it. But Terry was, as, she, as uh, Brother Kevin mentioned, visiting with her father and having a nice time for uh, his birthday. I don't know what it is to be 89. <laughs> if I find out, that'll be in the Lord's will. Amen. I want to invite you to turn this morning to Isaiah chapter 7 with me. And I'd like to read uh, a fair portion of that chapter in your hearing. And uh, <clears throat> we'd like to focus on something that many people are focused on at this time of year, and that is the birth of our Lord and uh, the prediction that Isaiah, by inspiration of God's Spirit, gives of it, if I could give you a title because of the, I think, appropriateness of the hymn with relation to this scripture, I would give you, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because we see the name Emmanuel first mentioned here as a name in this seventh chapter of Isaiah. And uh, as we uh, reflect on that, we indeed... Uh, are thankful that He has come the first time, but we look forward in anticipation to the fact that He will come again. And may our look at this portion lead us to cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, longing for His return, longing for that day when we shall see Him as He is and be made like Him. Let's read, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 20. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved in the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Jerusalem and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within three and threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it not be a people. Be not a people, excuse me. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, 
Ask thee of a sign, ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know how know to choose to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall be shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with the razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. We'll stop our reading there. We're going to think a little bit about these words that Isaiah gives by inspiration of the Spirit to uh, particularly the house of David. The words that focus here have a specific focus of address to those who were of the line of David to whom God had made special and significant covenant promises. We want to think about that in the context of Isaiah 7 this morning as we consider this prophecy of the virgin birth that Isaiah was given by our God. We want to consider that, the Lord willing, in our time as it permits to to think a little bit about the larger picture of Scripture concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to Mary as a virgin. And uh, we see it again predicted here in these words of 714 of Isaiah. But let's just look to our God and ask His blessing again upon His Word. Father, we bow before You in the name of the One who is spoken of here by Isaiah. We thank You for Him who is Emmanuel. Father, we thank You that in the Lord Jesus, God is with us by Your presence, but also as He is God. Father, we rejoice to know in Thy mercy You have provided such a Savior. Forgive us our sins, Father, as we approach Thee and as we as well approach Thy Word. May Thy Holy Spirit be the one who would help us, who would instruct us, be our guide in the look at this portion of Thy Word today. Father, we ask You to help us to be more thankful, grateful for the One whom You sent to save, the One whose birth we think of at this time of the year, but whom we remember throughout the year. We ask you to glorify him in our lives in his name. Amen. Well, again, we think about this in terms of the hymn or carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I don't know if you remember that carol, but the hymn writer weaves together in that hymn a number of the Old Testament pictures of Christ, 
O come thou key of David, come. O come thou rod of Jesse. Different images that are used prophetically of Christ. And so I believe even the name itself to that hymn is very significant with regard to the fact that we're looking here in Isaiah 7 at a prophecy, a prediction of the coming of our Savior. But in order to appreciate that, that prophecy, we do well to think about some of the context of what we've read, especially because it may seem a little bit confusing. Right there in the middle of these verses we've read, or not quite the middle, it is verse 14 that gives us this prophecy. But we might look at it and think, well, well, how does this relate to the Lord Jesus? How is it that these verses speak of Him? And uh, we'd like to set that jewel in context a little bit, if you will, with regard to the words. And in order to do that, it'd be good to remember a little bit about the situation of Israel at this time. With regard to what we read here in chapter 7, the history was set really back in the, the 900s B.C. when Solomon had ruled, you remember, for 40 years, the son of David... And Solomon had ruled well for a while. Uh, we mentioned, I think, maybe last time we were with you, the words of the prayer of William Culberson of Moody, president of Moody Bible Institute, the prayer which he prayed, Lord, help me to finish well. That prayer was one that had been good for Solomon to pray. When he asked God for wisdom, it would have been good for him to pray, Lord, and help me to stay wise. Lord, don't just give me wisdom, but Lord, let me maintain that wisdom. But that didn't happen. Now, we do believe God worked in Solomon to bring him to repentance. I believe that's why we have Ecclesiastes. Solomon surveys life at the end of his sojourn after that period of wandering. And he comes to say, this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. He knew he had failed there. But in that time, remember, after Solomon's reign... God had already announced through Ahijah the prophet that he was going to split the kingdoms. And indeed, he'd already even picked the man whom he was going to make king over the northern tribes. That man was Jeroboam. And you'll remember that Solomon's son Rehoboam came to rule after Solomon's death. And they met at Shechem to confirm the kingship. And when they met there at Shechem, the, the, the people came and said, basically, your daddy was hard on us. Would you be a little lighter? And so Rehoboam said, give me three days to think about it. And, and uh, he counseled with the old men who had been his father's counselors. And they said, you speak comfortably to these people. And you tell them, you'll try to do what they've asked. Well, he talked with his friends as well, whom he'd grown up with. I'd call them the young Turks, you know. And uh, they said, "What should I?" What she asked, "What should I tell them?" They said, "You tell them you're going to be. Oh, your dad was a piece of cake compared to you. You're going to be hard as nails." That's what he told them. And they said, "What portion have we in David? You see to your own house, David." And they split from ten tribes, formed that northern kingdom. And we, you know, we think about our own history as a nation. There was an there was an extended civil war of about four years that really decimated the South. The North was impacted too; many lives lost. But Israel was in at this point. They've been in about a two hundred year civil war. Now it's not been as intense in some measure, and yet there have been those moments, those times of intensity throughout that two hundred years in which they had been in civil war. And in that civil war, 
the 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 affairs that take place in other nations as well impact Israel and Judah. The southern kingdom, Judah was marked by Benjamin and it seems Simeon would probably have been absorbed in Judah because Simeon and Judah occupied that same southern territory. But those ten northern tribes, they were constantly at war with the southern tribes. Now those southern tribes continued to be ruled by a king in the line of David. The northern tribes were not. They were ruled by... It started out with the man Jeroboam but then it was succeeded by the house of Omri and then by the house of Jehu. And there were kings replacing kings and conspiracies and lines being stomped out, families being uprooted and killed. All of that part of the really the nature of kingship in the Middle East in those days and maybe not too far from, from it now. If a man came to rule, he'd not only exterminate the king he'd succeeded, but he'd also kill all his family, make sure there was no heir to claim the throne. And uh, that's been parcel not only the Middle East and kingship, but even in England it happened. But that, that was what took place in that northern kingdom. So there was this extended civil war. But the, the activity in other nations also impacted Judah and Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, is also called Ephraim here because the major tribe in many respects of the northern kingdom was Ephraim. And that's another name that's used here in Isaiah 7 to speak of that northern kingdom. Now, particularly in Isaiah's day, what's going on is, and and again, the, the line of David ruled over Judah, and that was significant because God had made special covenant promises to David God had spoken that He would have one to reign on His throne who would reign forever and ever. As Mr. E.V. Hill would say, and ever, and ever, and ever. Uh, That was God's promise. And it's important to keep that covenant promise in mind as we come to Isaiah 7 too. Because there's going to be a significant threat to the house of David here. And God's going to address that. So, so all of that's in play. And, and what, what has been happening, it seems, is in, in the wider world picture of the Middle East in that time, Isaiah preached around 700 and before B.C., in the Middle East in that time, Assyria was beginning to rise as a kingdom. Babylon had been a kingdom before that. Babylon we restored under Nebuchadnezzar. But, but in between is Assyria. It becomes a mighty kingdom. And, and, and so Syria... Not to be confused with Assyria. Syria, which was to the west of Assyria, feels threatened because Assyria is growing, taking more land. And so Assyria addresses Israel and says, Assyria, excuse me, I made the mistake now. Syria addresses Israel and says, we need to get an alliance up. So we can withstand Assyria. We're not strong enough to fight them on our own. We need to get together. And let's form a confederacy of nations. And what they want to do is get Judah involved. Now at this point, the ruler of Judah in the line of David is Ahaz. Now Ahaz is not a godly ruler. He had a father, Jotham, and as well before Jotham, Uzziah, who were, it seems, somewhat godly, but... but uh, marked by some flaws, obviously. But but Ahaz doesn't have any time for the Lord. He's a wicked man. And whether he's reading the signs of the time and thinking, well, I'd rather be in league with Assyria than be in league with you guys and fall with you guys, 
We don't know what's going on in his mind, but in any event, Ahaz doesn't want to go along with that conspiracy, or excuse me, with that confederacy. So, what happens is Syria and Israel say, well, we'll just overthrow Ahaz, and we'll put a puppet ruler in his place in Judah, and then he'll go along with us, and we'll have three countries instead of two fighting against Assyria. Now that's basically what's going on in this immediate part of Isaiah 7. It continues in chapter 8 and so forth. Now the problem with that is if that takes place then not only will Ahaz be removed but as in keeping with policy of that day and even recent days, more recent days all the house of David would be extinguished that happens God's promise would fail so guess what it ain't going to happen because God's promise pardon my grammar again ain't going to fail the sovereign of the universe is going to bring to pass all his purpose child of God we ought to rest in that during these days always I know a lot's going on in their own country. Talk about conspiracies? (laughs) Looks like we've had some. But let's not forget who the president of presidents is. I don't say we shouldn't be active. I don't say we shouldn't be lifting our voice. If dishonesty and fraud took place, we ought to stand against it. But let's not lose sight of who the ultimate sovereign is the president of presidents, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. And he's going to bring to pass his purpose in the earth. And he says, As surely as I live, saith the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And that's going to happen. God's going to do that. And we can rest in his promise and thank him that he will firmly and committedly, unswervingly, keep and bring to pass his word of truth. So God gives this promise here. Now let's look at that. The details I've sketched out is the situation of Israel here. Just to notice it. Uh, if you'll go back with me to verse 1 and we'll try to just kind of walk through this quickly in the light of what we said about the situation of Israel. So we read here that uh, Ahaz... During his days, that reason and Pekah, or Pekah, these two kings, one king of Syria, king of Israel, they go up against Jerusalem to war, but they can't win. And so the house of David hears the news, verse 2 Syria's confederate with Israel, with Ephraim, excuse me, that's another name for the northern kingdom, and his heart, that is the heart of the house of David, and the heart of his people was moved as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord to Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Jeshar Ashashab thy son. I don't know why that's not coming out like I'd like. My tongue keeps getting wrapped around my eye teeth, I guess, and I can't see what I'm saying. But Shear Joshua is a, a son of Isaiah whose name means a remnant will return. And what God promises is in the face of His coming judgment against Judah, Judah is going to be judged. But in the face of that, 
God will have a remnant that will return, but that word shuv in Hebrew, yashuv, that, that word also means to be converted. In other words, God is going to continually, within Israel, as Romans 11 talks about, have a remnant according to His election of grace, whom He's going to save within Israel. Now one day we understand all Israel will be saved in God's coming future purpose of grace to them, but right now, may I say it in the words of Brother Albin, God's always been in the remnant business. Now, just down the road, Miss Sarah Basham, whom some of you know, Junior was with us a few uh, months back on Sunday night, but uh, she always loved a remnant shop. Her son Sammy, that run the hub mill down there, he would uh, he would sometimes need his dad to go get a part for tractor, and he he'd say, "Mama, why don't you go with Daddy? There's a remnant shop real close to that part shop, you know." He knew he could hook her because she loved remnants, and she'd get remnants and sew and all. Well, God's always been in the remnant business. In every generation, it may get down to eight, as in Noah's day. But God is always going to have a remnant according to His electing grace. We can rejoice in that, brothers and sisters. And God has a remnant that will be saved, a remnant that will return, a remnant that will be converted. That's what this name means. And so He and His daddy Isaiah go down to meet Ahaz and they're told a specific place there at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the fuller's field. And Isaiah is told to give him a message. Verse 4, notice, And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Remaliah. God's telling, in other words, the king, even though he's wicked, God's command to him is, You be still before me. Take heed, that is, don't run after Assyria and don't run after these nations either. You fear not, don't be scared. Now the trees of the field, when they move with the wind, that's what the house of David's been like. In other words, they're scared about the news. And God's saying they has, don't you worry. He's going to speak even more strongly in just a little bit. And I like the way he describes these two kings. There are two tails of smoking firebrands. If you've got a firebrand you're holding in your hand, some kind of torch or coal, when you get to the end of it, that's that's the end of it. That, that's the end. Well, that's what these are like. Two tails. They're, they're about to extinguish, in other words. God says they're on their way out. Don't worry about them. And brothers and sisters, that's true about every earthly power, really, isn't it? Even if it's just started to rule, it's already on its way out. Because the days of earthly power are numbered. The only kingdom that will last forever is the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. And that's what God's going to speak about. Not only in Isaiah 7, but it continues in Isaiah through to the end of chapter 12, really beyond that, but in this specific portion, which some students of Isaiah call the book of Emmanuel about this special, this significant child that's to be born. So, so God speaks to him, and uh, he goes on to enlarge on the situation that we've mentioned by way of speaking about Israel's situation. Verse 5, Because Syria, Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. He would be a, like a puppet ruler who would govern Judah in the place of the line of David. Now, 
Here is what God says about it. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. God said, It's not going to happen. That's what they think to do, but my thoughts are not their thoughts. And so, I am going to maintain the house of David. And God did that. They thought, we'll replace it. We'll get rid of the house of David. But God said, no! That's not going to happen. I am going to maintain my promise. Because ultimately, through David's line, Messiah would come. And so God said, it will not stand, neither shall it come to pass. Now as we read on, God gives some further word about Syria and Israel and how they will, they will cease to be. Thus saith, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. Sixty-five years is a period of time, and it actually wasn't that long. In 722 B.C., Assyria came down and took Israel, the northern kingdom, Ephraim here, captive. And they were removed from their homeland and other people were imported, immigrated into it by the king of Assyria's desire to make his kingdom as homogeneous as he could. And, and so he removed them. And they were taken in exile. And Syria as well was taken in exile. Amos speaks about that as well in his words of prophecy. But God brought judgment on both of those kingdoms and the Assyrian also became an instrument of judgment to Judah. But it did not remove them. They, if you'll notice in verse 20, this, is, this relates to Judah here. In the same day shall the Lord shave with the razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, that is beyond the, the, Mes- the, the Mesopotamian area, the uh, Tigris-Euphrates area, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, it shall also consume the beard. Now, verse 20 has been taken by some as a scripture reference that the Lord Jesus did not have a beard. In that day shall the Lord shave with the razor of him that's hired. But that's misunderstanding of the passage. It's not talking about the Lord shaving himself. What's he going to shave? He's going to shave the head, the hair of the beard, and uh, hair of the head, uh, feet, and consume the, the beard. In other words, he's going to shave Judah. And it's going to be a close shave. Be a Burma shave, if you will. Some of you remember Burma shave. I don't, but I've heard about it. All those signs all over like Sea Rock City, you know, or Pedro's south of the border. The Lord was going to shave them. But this is what God says as well in Isaiah 10 about Judah. That the Assyrian was an axe in his hand. But here's what happened, sadly, with Assyria. The axe began to boast and forgot that it was but an instrument in the hand of the God of heaven. So God says, Shall the axe boast against him that heweth therewith? But God used that axe to cut Judah short in judgment, but he did not destroy Judah. He did not remove them. Later they would be. But in the case of Assyria, God brought them, remember, to the very gates of Jerusalem, Sennacherib's army and Sennacherib's boasting his, through his representatives. And, and as they boasted about what they were going to do, God overthrew them. And 185,000 Assyrians 
were found dead in the camp. And the army of the king went back. And Sennacherib would write in his chronicles later, they found them over in Assyria. For many, people, for many years people said there was no Nineveh, there was no Assyria, that was a Bible myth. Then they began to unearth all these findings and they found out Nineveh was all the Bible said it was. But they found in Sennacherib's Chronicles this statement, Hezekiah, have I shut up as a caged bird in Jerusalem? Well, that was true, but that was all he could say. He couldn't say, I took him captive. Why? Because God destroyed Sennacherib's army and he had to go back. And ultimately what God said through Isaiah was brought to pass. His sons, his own sons killed him while he worshipped in the temple of his God in Israel. But God used him as an instrument of chastisement for Judah. And that's what verse 20 is talking about. But God used them to remove Samaria. Now, in the midst of that, God goes on to speak even more words of comfort and encouragement for Ahaz if he would receive them. But before that, notice, if you will, verse 9, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. That was God's word to the house of David, but also to, to the house of Judah. God is calling them to believe His Word. If you do not believe, you'll not be established. If you don't stand by faith, you will not stand at all. That's God's Word. And God speaks to them concerning this. Because again, Ahaz, although he had a godly heritage in measure, he was an unbeliever. And so the Lord goes on to speak with certainty of the fact that His Word will not fail. Verse 10, Moreover the Lord spake again at Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. So what God does in order to confirm His Word to Ahaz, that the house of David is not going to be destroyed. That that, that Syria and Israel or Ephraim will not be able to succeed in their plans. God says, Ask a sign of me. Doesn't matter where. Ask it in heaven. Ask it on earth. Now later he'll say that to Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah will do it. But Ahaz, this wicked man, all of a sudden becomes super pious. I'll not ask of the Lord. I'll not tempt the Lord. Brother, when God tells you to ask for a sign, get to asking. You see, God Himself commanded, ask a sign. And yet this wicked man's going to all of a sudden act like he's really super spiritual. I won't tempt the Lord. So God, notice His response, verse 13. And He said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Not hear thou now, but hear ye. Plural, because this is addressed not just to Ahaz the king at the time of the line of David, but to the whole house of David. Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Don't tire me out. Nahaz is in effect. You know, uh, I've mentioned to you, I know my brother, preacher, now with the Lord, Elder Dennis Ward. D.J. Ward pastored Main Street Baptist of Lexington. He's died back in April of 08. His wife's sister, Brenda, she's still living, his widow. And uh, she used to tell their son, Kaman, that they adopted. Kaman, you're getting on my last nerve. (laughs) 
in effect the Lord saying here, don't get on my last nerve. It's, 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 it's a small thing for you to worry men, don't worry me. God, I told him, ask for a sign. Ahaz in unbelief wouldn't do it. This was not spirituality speaking. I don't want to tempt the Lord. This was unbelief. Mr. Cooper wrote well in that hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He wrote, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. We don't need to look at His work with blind unbelief, child of God. We need to look with a full heart of faith and assurance in His promise because He keeps His Word. And so we read in verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that He may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. God gives an immediate reference to the prophet here, or through the prophet to the king, and he says the lands you abhor, those two nations, Ephraim or Israel and Syria, they're going to be forsaken of their kings. They're going to lose their kings, but they're also going to lose their land. But a longer distance sign is given, if you will. Uh, Much like God gave to Moses when Moses was told to go down to uh, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And God said, this will be the sign that I sent you. Then I'll let the people go. When you come out, you'll worship me in this mountain, Sinai. Now, that didn't have anything to do with the immediate going to Egypt. It was after they got out of Egypt. But sometimes God gives long-range signs along with short-range. He gave them some short-range signs that He showed to the people to confirm, such as the leprous hand, you remember, and the snake that rod that turned into a snake. But but here God as well speaks of the immediate time the land is going to, the, those two nations are going to have their kings removed. But the long-term sign to the house of David is that the one who was of David's line promised in covenant, he would be conceived by a virgin womb and he would be Emmanuel. Now, I hope tonight we can look at Isaiah 9 6 a little bit. But God will later speak about this child born in these words in Isaiah 9 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. That child is the same one as Emmanuel, whose name means God with us. You see, in the purpose of God, and this is the sign of Emmanuel here in the command they has, in the face of judgment and destruction and exile, God gives a sign that transcends the ages of a coming child to be born of a virgin womb who would be Emmanuel. Because in order for God's 
saving purpose in covenant not only with David, but also with Abraham in the new covenant Jeremiah 31 speaks of. In order for God's covenant to stand and come to pass, Jesus Christ, as God and man, had to die in order to save His people from their sins and to bring to pass God's righteous rule that would undo what sin has done. Now, that's part of the wider view. But the child born would be born of a virgin. Now, I want us to think quickly. We've taken a lot of time talking about the context again. But I want us to think quickly about the nature of that child. In considering the side of Emmanuel, I ask you to think with me about the significance of the incarnation that took place. And why don't you turn with me to Matthew 1 real quick just to see where the Spirit of God quotes the words of Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, let's just pick up at verse 18 to read it. And read down through to uh, the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as His mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And we see Joseph's response in Matthew 1.19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us then Joseph being raised from sleep did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus notice the prophecy there of, in verse 23 of Isaiah seven fourteen. I believe in the words of the angel that are quoted Quoted, or that are spoken here, quoted by Matthew 2, Joseph, I believe those words extended right on through to the prophecy. In order that Joseph, as a son of David, could have confirmed to his heart, as a righteous man too, a, a godly son of David, Joseph could have confirmed to his heart that Mary's pregnancy was indeed the virgin birth that God had spoken 700 years before by Isaiah in which the one who was born to her would be Emmanuel, or also Jesus, the Lord Jehovah, our salvation, or Savior, who will save His people from their sins. That's who He is. And this was God's purpose in the incarnation, for the only way that we could be saved is in the purpose of God, that God Himself become man, and fulfill for us what we could not fulfill for ourselves, and then at the cross take the penalty that we could not pay ourselves. That's Anselm put it so well. To pay for sin requires one of two things. Either that the finite suffer infinitely, or that the infinite suffer finitely. You and I as finite or limited creatures, if we pay our own sin debt, we'll be in hell forever. Because we'll never pay it. The lake of fire is eternal because you never get out of God's debtor's prison if you pay your own debt. 
But the good news of the Gospel announces how God, in His great love for sinners, sent His Son on behalf of His people as the infinite One to pay their sin debt. Because He is Emmanuel, He doesn't have to suffer forever. In His eternal being, He's able to pay the penalty in the space of those hours on the cross. For in the eternal being of His person as God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ suffered an eternity on the cross. I can't imagine it, but I love the fact that it's so. I have to say in the words of Brother Watts, when I think about those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I have to say, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. I see the wonder of God's grace in His Son here at the cross. But I see it even in His virgin birth. Now, now let's think a little bit about the virgin birth with, with, connect, with relation to the, the, uh, the significance of the Incarnation. When sin entered, what did sin affect in the world? When, when, when man, humanity sinned, of course Satan had sinned before him, it seems, Isaiah 14, Exodus 28, the, the, the fall of the Lucifer, the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. But when man sinned, what was impacted in the world that God had made man vice-regent over? He told him to rule. Was it just humanity? No. Because... The curse is announced, is it not? And how far is that curse extended? Romans 8 tells us that the whole creation groans and travails together. Why? Because it's under a curse. What's it groaning for? To be set free. But the only way it can be set free is to be transformed. The old has to become new. Well, God didn't take from the old to create the new. God started a new thing, if you will. And by the Holy Spirit overshadowing the womb of Mary, God did that new thing. He created a new man. He... And I realize the old creation's tied in, but it's in a way that God makes sure the old creation doesn't taint it. And no human seed passed to the womb of Mary. There was no human instrumentality in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. God did that because He was making a new creation and the new creation was going to begin with the new Adam, if you will. Now, I know He's called the last Adam, but He's a new man. Now, in that new man, guess what? There's going to be a new creation, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new humanity. A redeemed humanity. All of that, may I say, is seen in seed form in the last Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven. In the first Adam, what happened? Sin, death, condemnation. That's what this earth is marked by. But in the new Adam, in the last Adam, the second man, the Lord from heaven, guess what? Righteousness, justification, and life. And we will reign in life by one through 
that virgin-born one who alone can bear the name Emmanuel. Who is that baby born of Mary that she's laid in a feeding trough for animals? Why, that's the King of creation. That's God Himself wrapped up in our humanity, sin apart. Brothers and sisters, that is a marvelous thing to consider. I, I, I can't... I can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. But oh, I believe it and I bow to it as I recognize Him who is Emmanuel, our great Savior. And we have to say in the words of Brother Bliss, Hallelujah, what a Savior. You remember he wrote in that first stanza, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all is ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Thank God for Emmanuel this morning.